Everybody doing okay? You made it through 2020. That's a good thing, right? You know what I mean? It was good. <laughs> okay, so let me talk about the important stuff first, because I, I, in the other services, I got caught up talking about stupid stuff and forgot the important stuff. Um, so this month, we are working with In Slavery Tennessee. That is a phenomenal organization that is in, like, the darkest trenches. So here's the thing. I think they were shooting for 7500 bucks for, the, for, like, the month from us. Um, not trying to be that guy, but that, that's, not, that's not much for a church this size. So uh, I'm just encouraging you guys, go back there, say hi to them, throw, throw 20 bucks at them or 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever you can spare. It is a wonderful organization. If you don't know much about them, they're absolutely phenomenal. Go to the prayer wall, pick up one of those things. It's got a bunch of different prayer needs that that organization needs. And um, let's get behind them. They, they really get into some dark stuff and are doing a wonderful mission. Okay, that's the, that's the serious stuff. Now, here's the stupid stuff. So um, we always watch New Year's Rock and Eve. That's like our thing. Not because it's good. It's because it's so bad that it's good, right? Uh, if you don't remember a couple years ago when Mariah Carey was like on some other note somewhere that doesn't exist during the song, it was fabulous to watch. Anyways, so um, we missed it this year, which was a little sad, but I found out that Cindy Lauper was on it. I love Cindy Lauper. Girls just want to have fun as my ringtone. It's a true story, uh, which makes for really interesting looks when you're in a restaurant and you forget to put your phone on silence. And a grown man in his 40s has girls just want to have fun, and people are like, like, like sheltering their kids. You know, I'm like, no, 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 it's cool. I got daughters. It's fine. Uh, anyways, so uh, heard that she was on New Year's Rock and Eve. So my wife and I YouTubed it, and it was all the train wreck you would have imagined. Even though I love Cindy Lauper so much. Uh, and it was like a fitting cap. And uh, anyways, that, has, that, that was a terrible thing to say. I just want to tell you, you thought the year couldn't get any worse. And you're like, Cindy Lauper doesn't have any more. Uh, she doesn't have it anymore. And, and that was kind of the icing on the cake. So we're in the book of Matthew. <laughs> we have two chapters, a good transition. Thank you for that. That was smooth, wasn't it? It's like butter. Anyways. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in this book of the Bible this entire year. It's been, um, I believe, a really good book uh, to do in a year like we've had. We have two lessons left. We have the second half of chapter 27, and then we have chapter 28 that we have to cover. So this week and next week, and, and uh, we're going to move on to the book of Philippians because I need a happy book of the Bible, and we're going to be in that, and that's going to be fun. So where we were last week, we were not yet at the cross, but we were right on the cusp of it, okay? What has happened is Jesus has been arrested by the Jewish authorities. They want to have him killed, but they can't do that unless they go through the Roman authorities. So they bring Jesus to the Roman authorities. Um, he is convicted by the Roman authorities out of pressure, not because they actually believe he's guilty. He is beaten. He is flogged. He is spat upon. He is made fun of um, by Roman soldiers. And where we ended last week in verse 31, it says, and then they led him away to crucify him. Now, what we talked about last week was kind of this irony of what the cross is. And the irony of the cross is, is that we are the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Not just the Jews, not just the Romans, all of us. We put Jesus, our sin, our evil, put him on that cross. The irony is it is only by what happened on the cross that we can be saved from our evil. That's kind of the irony that is the cross, okay? So this week, we're going to continue. We're really going to talk about the cross because in Matthew chapter 27, in the second half, it is about the crucifixion and the death of Christ. So what we're going to talk about today, it is, it, it is the crucifixion of Jesus that really shows us not only how much God loves us, this is going to be our buzzword today, but how much he values us, how valuable we are to Christ, okay, to God. Now, look, I have some homework up here for you. Because Matthew chapter 27 does not give us the full spectrum of the depth of the crucifixion of Jesus, you need to go back and read Luke chapter 23 and John chapter 19. It'll take you 15, 20 minutes, but there is so much in these other gospels, right, that, that kind of gives us more of a complete picture of what Matthew writes about in chapter 27. So you got a little bit of homework, but uh, it's good homework. It's easy homework. It, it'll, it'll bless you. It's good. Okay. So when you came in, you should have got a notes handout. Has everything I'm going to say in there? Everything should be on the screens around the room. 
Um, if you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, you can download the app. You got the notes and the scripture. If you got a Bible, uh, it's one of these. If you got one of these, if you go to the first book of the New Testament and go to the 27th chapter, we're starting on the 32nd verse. We'll go through it and um, read it and break it down. Uh, there's some really, really fascinating stuff. And um, not just... <laughs> Not just the crucifixion of Jesus, but the things that were happening around the cross are really, really intriguing to talk about. And there's a lot of very, very practical things that come out of the story of Jesus dying for us. It's very, very interesting. I think you guys will enjoy it, okay? So let me pray. Let's jump into this. And um, it's good to see you. If you're online, I can't see you, but I guess it's good to, good to see me, right? Um, anyways, that was terrible. I was dumb too. Let's, let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we love you. Lord, I love this church so much. God, I pray that you keep your hand on us this morning, God. Um, not just everyone in the room, God, but, but everyone watching online, Lord, that, that your word would just touch our hearts today. God, that you would bless us, that you would teach us something new, Lord, that you would bring us closer to you, God. Father, we don't just pray for our church, Lord. We pray for every church in our city. God, we pray for all the churches we work with all around the country and in other countries, God. Uh, Father, Lord, we pray for, for In Slavery Tennessee, God. We, we, we work with a lot of great nonprofits. Lord, this one's a little extra special, Lord. They do some really, really tough but important work. So, God, we pray that you bless them financially. Pray that you bless them with all the help they need, God, and the resources they need, Lord, to, to continue their mission. And, Father, uh, forgive me, Lord, for making fun of Cindy Lauper, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let me read a little bit. We'll go back and break it down, okay? Matthew writes, as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, and they forced him to carry Jesus's cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above Jesus' head, they put the charge against him. In writing, it says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with Jesus, taunted him. So Mark chapter 15, that's another gospel of the Bible. Mark chapter 15 lets us know that Jesus was put on the cross at about nine o'clock in the morning, okay? So when victims were crucified, what they would typically do, and this is kind of an added insult to the, the very horrific death they were about to face anyways, is they would make the person who's going to be crucified carry their cross to where they were going to be crucified. Jesus wasn't capable of doing this because of the beating he had taken already. Probably because of the massive amount of loss of blood, because he was fatigued, because he had been tortured for a long time. He was unable to carry physically his cross. So they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, who was an African Jew. Now, the fact that this man was not just black, he was probably a very dark shade of black, is going to come into importance later on in this chapter. But it's interesting that it was named. He was from the area of Cyrene, which means Jesus would have been dark too. He wasn't a white guy with blue eyes like the movies tell you. He was dark complected as well. This man would have been very, very dark, okay? And so they see this man, this Serenian man named Simon, and they say, hey, you, grab this guy's cross and help him carry it up here. Now, fun historical fact, this man, Simon, became a follower of Jesus. Not only him, the book of Mark mentions that his children also became followers of Jesus and were very well-known followers of Jesus, which meant they must have been pretty active in the early church. 
So Simon helps Jesus carry his cross up to a hill called Golgotha, which the literal translation is a place of the skull. They call it that because if you ever Google Golgotha, the, the hill, in the side of the hill, it looks like you can see a skull. The reason why they would crucify people on this hill is the hill was by a very popular road that would go into Jerusalem. And so what it was is it was a way to deter criminal activity. You would come into the city, you would see the crosses, right, from other people who had gotten crucified. They would leave the bodies of people typically who had been crucified up there for weeks or months to rot on these crosses. And they would have the names of the crimes that they had committed. So you're rolling into town and you're like, oh, that's what they do to thieves. That's what they do to murderers. It, is, it was a deterrent. So when people were crucified, it was also customary that they would give them wine to help dull their pain. I find that ironic, right? We're going to do the most horrific way to kill you ever, but hey, we don't want you to hurt too bad, so we're going to give you some wine. So what they would typically do is give them wine to drink while they were hanging on the cross. And so there's two ways of looking at this thing. It said there was gall mixed in the wine. We're not sure exactly what that is, but there's two different scenarios. One, they believe it was an herb that was so bitter that if you tried to drink it, you would spit it out. It was just, you couldn't, you couldn't drink it. So one, one, one group of people thinks that Jesus tasted this and it was so bad, he, he just couldn't drink it. Another group of people think that gall was actually like a drug that helped with pain relief. And because he wanted I don't want to say wanted, but because Jesus was to experience the full uh, experience of the cross, that he spit out anything that would dull the pain, and he refused it. Not sure which one it is, but two interesting things to think about. So when you're reading Matthew's account of the crucifixion, it goes by quick. There's not as much detail in Matthew's account as, say, John 19. And the reason why is Matthew's audience was different than John's audience. Matthew's audience was for a predominantly Jewish community. Maybe the other reason why John's account was so detailed as well is because John was the only disciple actually at the cross of all the disciples. He saw it all. But Matthew's audience was different. Matthew's whole objective of his book of the Bible was to prove to predominantly Jewish people that Jesus Christ was the Savior. And by this point, he, he feels like he has done that. And there's no need to mention all of the gruesome details of the cross. But here's what happens with a lot of people. So if, if you're a new Christian, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, you'll read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there are differences in the four Gospels. Not discrepancies, but differences. It's like if, if four of us were on four different corners and we watch a car accident happen, because of the angle and because of the people we're describing it to, we're going to mention different details of what has happened in here. That's what's going on with the Gospels. So it's not that there's a problem with the congruency of the Gospels. They're 100% congruent. There's no contradictions. But it takes reading. It takes a little bit of study. It takes a little bit of history. And you can see that there are no flaws. There are no contradictions within the Bible. So while Jesus is on the cross dying, the soldiers were gambling for his clothes. He was a celebrity. Clothes were probably going to be worth a lot of money. Let's, let's cast lots, roll dice essentially, and figure out who gets them. Now, this fulfilled a prophecy from hundreds and hundreds of years ago from the book of Psalms. And they also stood there as they were unknowingly fulfilling prophecy. And they guarded the cross because they didn't want any followers of Jesus to get up there and, and to somehow save him. So above Jesus' head also read his crime. He had committed no crime, but they posted what he was accused of. He was accused of claiming to be the king of the Jews, which means he was the savior, the Messiah. And so up above his head, it says, this is king of the Jews, right? Kind of in a sarcastic tone. And that's what he's being crucified for. So Matthew wanted to see, or to show us, for us to see, the irony of this whole situation. The reason why Matthew includes that script that Jesus was being crucified because he said he was king of the Jews. To say you were king of the Jews would have been blasphemous to the Jews. They're, you're saying that you are God, basically. You are our savior. To the Roman Empire, that would have been a threat to the Caesar. So listen, let me see if I can paint this picture well. 
the Romans and the Jews saw Jesus as a threat to their government, a threat to their liberties. He, they, they thought Jesus was going to come and overthrow their government. They thought that he was going to be a tyrant king, right? That's why he was on the cross. The irony is, is Jesus didn't come to be a tyrant king. Jesus didn't come to be a politician at all. Jesus came to save people. Jesus came to help people, to love people. The Bible even says not to condemn them, but to save them from condemnation. The irony is, is what they saw as a threat was actually the one who was coming to help them. And they nailed him to a cross. That's what they did. The irony continues even more, the fact that he was nailed to a cross between two common criminals. So it continues on. And many people walked by and they saw the spectacle and they hurled insults at Jesus. And they said, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? If you're really king of the Jews, if you really have favor with God, come off of this. Now, listen, let me tell you how Corey would act if Corey was king of the universe. If I was king of the universe and got nailed to a cross by the very people that I created and they were spitting on me and taunting me like that, I'd snap my fingers and they'd all be obliterated, right? That's how I would respond. I'm not saying it's the right way, but I'm saying that's what I would do, right? Now, the more powerful thing to do than to snap your fingers and obliterate all these people, the more powerful thing was to restrain himself because he loved them, even the ones mocking him even the ones that nailed him to the hunk of wood, he loved them so much that he did not obliterate them. He took their taunting, he took their torture because he was going to buy their salvation with his love and with his control, his restraint, okay? It is by God's love and restraint that we are saved because all of us deserve to be obliterated. But he didn't do that, he didn't do that. So if you really want to read about these two criminals, uh, Luke chapter 23 gives you a really good account of these two criminals. At one point, because of Matthew's account, we know that both criminals were taunting or making fun of Jesus. But somewhere down the line, one of the criminals realized, had a revelation, if you will, that this is the Savior. This is the Messiah. And at one point, one of the criminals looked at him and he said, Jesus, remember me. When you enter into your kingdom, one of the neatest things in the entire Bible, Jesus looks at this criminal who is on a cross and says, surely today, I promise you, you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. He gets saved on that cross. So the other criminal fails to humble himself and to his death makes fun of Jesus and kind of doubles down on his rebellion. And what we see in these two criminals is we see basically the two paths that, that humanity has to walk. We've all made mistakes, we all deserve punishment, but we can either humble ourselves and give in, or we can double down on our rebellion and our pride. And I'll tell you what, in a year like 2020 that should have humbled a lot of people, I'm shocked by how many Christians have doubled down on their pride and arrogance. Shocked by it. My rights, my life, my body, I can do whatever I want, it's me, 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 and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound like Christ. Well, that doesn't sound like the Christianity that we're called to follow. What will it take to humble humanity? What will it take? This year, God knocked down every freaking idol we have in the United States, and still there's so much pride and arrogance. He's toppled economies. He's toppled sports. He's toppled entertainment. He's toppled education. He's toppled politics. He's toppled everything, and still. But here's what's crazy is if you go to the back of your Bible— Jesus is even going to shake the earth and the cosmos, and there will be people who are so in love with the darkness that it says they will climb under rocks and shake their fist and still curse God. Because some people will never be humbled. But I know that's not you. That's not me. That's not the people watching, right? That's why, that's why we're digging into the word, is we want to be humbled. We want to, we want to address that pride and anger, okay? Let's keep working. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard him say this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest of them said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. 
But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after the resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this was the son of God. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, if you don't know who that is, she had a very checkered past, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So from 9 a.m. to noon, Jesus suffered physically. He was on a cross. I don't know if you know anything about crosses. I mean, we don't use those in our, our day and age, but the way you typically died on a cross was from asphyxiation. You suffocated. So you were nailed, and that's why they put a bend in your knee when they were nailed to the cross, because you'd have to shove your body up to take a breath. So literally, Jesus had to fight for every single breath. And what, the way you would die is, is you would eventually lose the power to be able to fight for that breath, and you would suffocate to death. So from 9 a.m. to noon, this is what Jesus was going through. From noon to 3 o'clock, it says the whole area got dark. Now, what was happening here, and this is very deep, what was happening during this time is, is God was turning his back on his only son. I was sitting at Just Love the other day, and there was a really sweet woman that her and her family just started coming here, and I met her for the first time, and we just got to talking, and she's like, Corey, I just, I can't wrap my brain around the fact that God would have to turn his back on his only son. Now, the reason why God had to do that is in this moment, Jesus was taking on all of the evil that humanity had ever done, was doing, and would ever do in the future. He was absorbing all of the sin of all people who have ever lived and would ever live. Basically, what was happening is, is Jesus was, <laughs> Jesus was taking the punishment that we deserved. And God had to turn his back because Jesus was going to absorb the wrath of God that we deserved. But Jesus loves us so much, he was going to take that separation and that wrath from God. And as God turned away, because Jesus became the sin of the world, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And at this moment, Jesus was utterly alone. He was completely alone. And though he was absorbing all evil, though everyone had turned their back on him, he remained on the cross. And when some people heard this, they thought, well, maybe he's crying out for Elijah. Maybe he's crying out for a prophet to save him. Maybe he's lost his mind because he's about to die. And look how sick this is. They go, let's watch and see what happens. Let's watch, right? And then as some people were feeling sorry for him, others were still making fun of him says Jesus cried out one more time and he gave up his spirit, which means his last breath, right? He gave up his life. And some of the crowd saw this. They felt sorry. Others loved seeing the violence. You know, it's crazy. We read parts like this of the Bible and we think, man, we're so much more evolved than those barbaric, chaotic people of the past. There's no way I would go out and watch a man get hurt. I'm just going to YouTube some guy getting stomped on a curb at a protest. We think we're so much better, don't we? We fill up arenas to watch men beat the junk out of each other. We like watching car crashes and we like watching violent imagery and we like watching all this stuff thinking that we're so much more cosmopolitan than the people that came before us. But there has always been this sick fascination that humanity has with gore and violence. Let me tell you what changed my opinion on a lot of that. Man, I, I, have a, I have a minor in film studies. If you just want a worthless minor to burn some money, just get that. Anyways, my major was English. That was pretty close. Anyways, watched a lot of movies in my days, right? A lot of them. Used to be, be a big, huge Quentin Tarantino fan and Reservoir Dogs and all that stuff. Love that stuff. You know why I don't watch any of that stuff anymore? And listen, your convictions are your convictions. We have different convictions, and that's fine. The longer I've been a pastor, the more real violence and ugliness that I've seen, and I just don't want to watch a bunch of movies that glorify it and make it look sexy. 
I've just seen too much of it, right? It's too much of it on a real, we had three people die at this church last week. Last week, the oldest one was 31. Just seen too much of it. And so as a spirit-filled Christian, there comes a point where we're, I think all of us need to be like, I just don't think my spirit jives with that crap, man. And we need to step away from it. But the world loves seeing things burn. We love seeing it. So when Jesus gave up his spirit, when he gave up his life, God did three miraculous things to show the world that this was the Savior. The first thing that happened is the veil in the temple ripped. Now, you may think, well, okay, a curtain ripped. What's the big deal about that? So the Holy of Holies that was in kind of the inner sanctum of the temple in the middle of Jerusalem, that's where the presence of God, the full kind of unadulterated presence of God resided in this, this room, if you will, the Holy of Holies. Only certain people could go into that room at certain times of the year, and they had to be living right, or they would be struck dead when they entered into this presence, right? So what happened when Jesus died and that veil ripped from the top to the bottom, it ripped all the way down, right? That was symbolically showing that now the full experience of having a relationship with God, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God was not just going to be reserved for certain people at certain times. It was going to be accessible to anybody. That's what that veil tearing apart did. It cut down the barrier between us and God's spirit and his presence. The second thing that happened was an earthquake, the third thing that happened that I do not have the time to go into, thank God, because I really don't have all the answers for this, is it said a bunch of saints were resurrected from the dead, and when Jesus left the tomb, these saints also left their tombs. That's what the Bible says. Now, that is some crazy stuff, right? Imagine like you're sitting at home and Uncle Bob just died and like walks in and he's like, hey, gotcha, you know, like everyone's just sitting around. That'd probably spook you pretty bad, Right? But that's what the Bible says took place. And they were witnesses to Jesus Christ's resurrection. Interesting stuff that's in there. Now, here's probably my most favorite part about today. There was a centurion who was a high-level Roman soldier, had a bunch of men underneath him. This was probably the centurion that was responsible for having Jesus literally nailed to the cross, okay? Now, as they were sitting there, these are the ones guarding the cross. These are the ones gambling for his clothes. They felt the earth shake. It says they were terrified in this phrase. The Roman centurion says, surely that was the son of God. Now, let me tell you how big that is. The Romans probably didn't know a ton about the Jewish faith. That's the God we serve, the one God. But the Romans knew that the Jews only served one God. And they knew that the Jews served a God that said he was going to send a Messiah. And when the earth shook, when Jesus died, that Roman realized exactly who that was on the cross. Not only is there one God, the Romans believed in all kinds of gods, polytheists. He said there is one God, and that was his son. That was his son. So listen, this isn't just the turning point in those Roman soldiers' life. This was the door opening up. This was the door opening up. The soldiers realizing the true identity of Jesus was the beginning of the entire world being exposed to, to the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so look at the grace we see here. If you ever have someone come up to you and say, oh, I've done too much evil to be saved, these guys drove the nails in Jesus' hands and then turned around and got saved by him. Fascinating. You talk about grace. The same soldiers that did this because they humbled themselves and understood the identity of God, they were saved. So we've talked about so far, look at this in my next slide. We have talked about an African Jew, a person a different color than Jesus. We've talked about pagan Roman soldiers. Now, we, we've talked about criminals. I forgot to mention them. We talked about a criminal that got saved. And now this isn't a big deal to us, but now you have women. And again, in our culture, you know, we have a woman vice president now. We have women CEOs. We, it's not a big deal for us to talk about. We, we have pretty much equality in our nation right now when it comes to gender. But 2,000 years ago, they did not. And the fact that Matthew says the female disciples of Jesus were there witnessing the cross, lamenting his death, it shows just how progressive Christianity has always been when it comes to women. So who can be saved by the cross? Well, criminals, 
pagan Roman soldiers, people of different colors and nationalities, and people of different genders. Do you see where this is going? The cross is touching everybody from every walk of life. And so now we get to the burial. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which, he had, been cut, which had been cut into a rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. So near sunset, the beginning of the Sabbath day, the end of the Passover festival, look at this, a rich man named, Arimath uh, named Joseph from Arimathea, who was a Pharisee, one of the bad guys, right? He was a politician. I shouldn't say it, but if they can be saved, right? So Joseph was a rich, influential member of the religious and political order. And this rich, influential man became an integral part of the faith. Without this man, there wouldn't have been a tomb to bury Jesus Christ. Here's the thing about us, guys. We love the poor. We love the downtrodden. We love the abused and misused. We love those that, that don't have anything. We hate the rich because they have things that, quite frankly, we want. So we have a tendency in our culture to love everyone. What was one of the biggest phrases of 2020? Eat the rich, right? Wasn't that one of the biggest phrases? You saw it spray painted all over Mercedes, all over big cities. Eat the rich. Here's the thing. Even rich people can be saved. Even powerful, influential, affluential people can be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So Joseph wasn't just rich. He must have been very, very powerful. He had access to the governor. And not only access, the governor gave him what he wanted. So you know what we learned from that? The problem is not money. There's nothing wrong with having money. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of that money that's the root of all evil. And quite frankly, there's a lot of people that don't have money that love money more than people that have money. That, did that make sense? I said it really fast. Oh, I wasn't even sure if it made sense when it came out. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong with influence. There's nothing wrong with affluence. The problem is, is when we misuse those things and we use them for selfish reasons. Let me break this to you too, guys. We're so quick to point our fingers at people that have more than us. If any of you ever go to Africa with me, East Africa, I, I hate to break it to you, every single one of you in this room have more than every single one of them in that whole country. All of us live better, right? That cell phone in your pocket right now is about four months wages for them. Right? That's if they work every single day, 12 hours a day. So we have it really, really good. The question is not success or money or fame or fortune or any of those things. The question is, what do you do with it? And God has given every single one of us a level of success. The question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with that? So Jesus was placed in a tomb that was new, which means there was no one else in the tomb. They would typically have tombs where you would put multiple bodies in there. There was none. This was going to be just for Jesus. Okay? He was placed in the tomb. A great stone was rolled in front. Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary, it says, were sitting there, and they were just kind of watching this, right? Watching them close it. And so just for, for fun stuff, there are three different sites where they believe Jesus might be buried. The first one, which is the least likely, is called the Talpiot family site, where they think Jesus might have been buried. This is a picture of that. The second one is the garden tomb, which there's quite a few people that believe he, he might have been buried here. And then the third one, where most people believe Jesus' grave was, was the uh, Temple of the Holy Sepulchre right in the middle of Jerusalem. Um, if you have Disney+, Plus, there is an amazing documentary that National Geographic did on the Holy Sepulchre. It is really, really, really well done. I suggest you save that for the fast because your, your good Christian resources are unfortunately kind of limited when it comes to media, so use it wisely, all right? Okay, here we go, <laughs> last part. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And they said, sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. 
So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guard. Guard there is plural, okay? Multiple soldiers. So on the Sabbath day, that's between sunset Friday and sunset Saturday, the chief priests and elders gathered before Pilate. That was against their laws. They were supposed to be resting at that time, but they were breaking their own laws and they went to go do some politicking. And so they convinced Pilate to seal up the tomb and to place some guards there because Jesus said he would raise on the third day, okay? So Pilate granted the request and instructed the soldiers. He said, make it as secure as you know how to do it. Seal it up as good as you, you know how to seal it up and guard it as well as you can. So here's the thing. Not only was the tomb sealed, it was guarded by the highest level soldiers on planet Earth. There was no higher level soldier than a Roman soldier. And this would make it virtually impossible for anyone to get in, look what I did here, or anyone to get out. So if a prisoner, little thing about Roman history, if you care anything about it, if you were a Roman guard, and if someone escaped on your watch, or if a crime happened on your, not watch, on your sundial, if it happened on your sundial, you had to pay for that with your life. If you go into the book of Acts, there's a story about uh, a couple of followers of Jesus were in, a, were, were in a prison and it shook and a bunch of the prisoners got loose and it said that the, the jailer was about to impale himself on his sword. That's because he knew he was a dead man anyways. If you were a Roman soldier and people escaped on, on your watch, you're dead, okay? So the reason I'm telling you that is when we get into the next chapter, it says that the, that the soldiers were bribed. No way. There is no way that these soldiers would have done anything to jeopardize their mission because if they did, they were dead men. I'm saying all that to say there's no way that that tomb could have been any more guarded and secure. But the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders were like, we just got to keep it guarded until day four. And if we keep it guarded until day four and Jesus's body is still in there, then we've proved Jesus wrong. The problem comes when that body comes up missing on day three. So here's what is happening. It's happened back then and it happens now in the world today. There is a very diligent, conscious effort to suppress the truths within this book. A very diligent effort to suppress the teachings, the principles, the things of Jesus Christ. Okay? I find it ironic that the more that the world suppresses these things and tell you that these things don't work, the more that the world spirals completely out of control. The problem with trying to suppress the truth is this, though. It always comes to the surface. Always. In fact, the Bible even says there will come a time where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no way to keep Jesus Christ suppressed or pushed down. He is active and very much alive, and we'll see that next week. Let's talk a little bit about some things we learned today. The first thing that I picked up from studying the cross this last week was the crucifixion shows the power and restraint of God in the face of adversity. Like I said before, Jesus Christ, the Bible says everything was created through him and for him. That's what the Bible says. Jesus is the creator God. And as he was nailed to a cross, an all-powerful Christ restrained himself. Why? Because the very people that were mocking him and nailed him to a cross are the very people he came to save. And if he would have fought back, listen to me, if he would have punched back, listen to me even more carefully, if Jesus would have cared more about his rights than other people, sound familiar? I'm so sick of that phrase. If he cared more about his rights than other people, they would have gone to hell. But he laid down his freedoms and his rights because he loved those people that at the time didn't love him. What does that mean to us? If we're full of the same Holy Spirit that is part of the Holy Trinity of God, we too can restrain ourselves in time of anger. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to get angry. The Bible says it's what we do when we're angry that matters. 
God gets angry, but he has held back his wrath, right? To those of us that deserve it, all of us, because he loves us, because he wants us to be saved. And in this humble restraint, if we as followers of Jesus will trust that God fights our battles for us, if we will let the Holy Spirit temper us down, right? Settle us down and let us live in a way that honors God, more people will come into a relationship with Jesus Christ when they see that in us. That's why those Roman soldiers got saved, okay? So restraint and showing people grace. In the account of the crucifixion, I, I said it several times, look at this. We saw pagan Roman soldiers get saved. We saw a criminal get saved. We saw a black Jew from North Africa get saved. We saw women who were devoted followers of Jesus. We saw a rich man. What this shows us is the cross is available to anyone who wants it. That a relationship with God is for anyone who wants it. It is the cross that is the great equalizer of humanity. God doesn't care how famous you are. God doesn't care about how many Instagram followers you have. God doesn't care about how little you have in your bank account. He doesn't care about the color of your skin or the nation you were born in or what gender you are. He is no respecter of people. You don't impress him. He's the God of the universe. That means that all of us are on the same playing field. We all have equal access to Jesus Christ. We all have equal access to him. It's not like the world that has different degrees of how valuable all of you are, right? Jesus sees us all. And he says, anyone who wants to come, come. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you've done. I don't care the mistakes in your past. Come on. If you want a relationship with me, come on. The cross is the great equalizer. Let me tell you what else the cross does, and I hope I can explain this well. Listen, the value of an object, any object, is determined by the price that people want to pay for it. So my wedding ring, I got this a long time ago, 17 years ago. My wife's watching right now. I think I paid $200 for it. It's just white gold, nothing fancy about it, right? And that's how much it was worth to me. That's how much they were selling it for. I found it worth that much. I paid that much for it, right? An item is only worth as much as, willing, as, as one is willing to pay for it. So if we understand that the, the, the clothes you're wearing, the car you're driving, this building, jewelry, whatever, it is only as worth as much as people will pay for it. If we understand that that's how value is set on something, listen, listen, please listen. What does it say that God would give his only son for you? If the value of my life is determined on what one would pay for my life, God gave his only son for me. What does that say about my value? What that means is we are worth a lot more. We are invaluable to God. And because of the price he paid for us, because of the cross, we have open access to God. We have, an, we have open access to the spirit of God that transforms us and delivers us and saves us and gives us contentment and joy and hope and peace. The things we talked about at Advent service. It gives us these things. It liberates us. And so listen, if we understand one, that you're valuable, you were paid for by the biggest price that could ever be paid, that God gave everything for you and me, that means we are invaluable. And because of that invaluableness, because of that value that we have, we have access to all the things of God, which means we can be delivered and set free and liberated. And as Christians, here's where the rubber meets the road. If we understand our value and understand the transformative power of the Holy Spirit of God, we have to live in a way that honors the gospel. We have to, what that means is this, young lady, because Jesus paid a price for you on the cross, I'm not trying to condemn you, I'm just trying to tell you how valuable you are. For you to flippantly give your body to a bunch of boys that really don't care about you anyways is wrong for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason it's wrong is, is God doesn't want to condemn you for those mistakes. God wants to grab you by the side of your head and say, you're more valuable than to give yourself away like that. You're more valuable than that. Hold, hold on. You men in this room that look at pornography, 
Let me tell you a little bit about this. What you are doing is you are devaluing the women that you're, women that you're lusting at on that computer screen. It's more than just a lust issue. You are taking humanity and you are making them like animals. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm trying to tell you that you're worth more and your eyes that were so intricately created by your Savior need to look at something better than the trash you've been looking at. You're worth more than that. The crap that you're looking at online, those women are worth more than that. We're worth more than the houses we live in. We're worth more than the cars we drive. We're worth more than the greed and materialism that drives this nation right now. You're more valuable than that. Your value is not contingent on how many people give you a thumbs up or a heart or a whatever the stupid junk is that we put so much stock into right now. And if we understand that value, we need to live not as arrogant people, but as people that know that there has been a heavy price paid for us. Look at what Paul says in Philippians. Man, I've read that book of the Bible like 37 times. I'm so ready to teach it. Paul says just one thing. As a citizen of heaven, I love that phrase. Love it. You're not a citizen of Facebook. You're not a citizen of the United States. You're not a citizen of pop culture. You're not a citizen of your color or your nationality or your gender or your sexual preference. As a believer in Christ, you're a citizen of something greater than all those things. You're a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven... Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live like you're a royal priesthood, as the Bible says. Live like you're a peculiar people. Walk around knowing that everyone else may not know who I am, but the king of the universe knows exactly who I am, loves me and paid the ultimate price for me. Walk around and live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Do you hear me? I hope you hear me. I hope you hear me. And so listen, not only should us in this room and those watching right now understand our value, there is a whole world out there that is looking for purpose. They're looking for value. They find it in their sex. They find it in their drugs. They find it in their popularity. They find it in their celebrity status. They find it in their job. They find it in their degrees. They find it in the kind of car they drive. They find it in all these other things. And what happens is because our value can never come from any of those things I mentioned. We live in a culture right now that says, I'm valuable because of the color that I am, or I'm valuable because of how much money I make, or I'm valuable because of whatever we, we try to put stock into. And it keeps coming up short because our value can never be found in those things. Our value is found in the fact that we were made in the image of God. And you may know that, but there is a whole world out there that does not. And the reason why so many people are acting and living the way they are right now is because deep down inside, they just want to be known. They just want to be valued. See all these young men that don't know how to hold a job and they don't know how to treat a woman and they don't know how to do everything else, right? And we look at them and we judge them and we talk bad about them. We make fun of these millennials and talk about how they're screwing up the world. And it was all the generation before them that never raised them, never told them what the true value was, never told them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we wonder why we keep getting the same results. Because we've had generation after generation say, your value is in your job. Your value is in your looks. Your value is in your athletic ability. It's not where your value is. It's okay to be pretty. It's okay to be a good baseball player. It's okay to make money. It's not where your value comes from. And the more the world keeps looking for value in all these frivolous things, the more they're just going to go down, 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 down. So it's our job. <laughs> it's our job to go out to people and not hate them, not win an argument with them, not fight with them, not condemn them. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring condemnation. I came to save you from condemnation. It's not our job to go out and condemn people and call them whores and sluts. Sorry, I know there's kids in here, but to call people names and stuff like that, it's not our job. Our job is to look at people and to take them and say, you have no idea how valuable you are. You would live differently if you knew how precious you were. You would live differently if you knew how valuable you were, if you knew the price that was paid for you. Listen, I know your dad doesn't love you. I know you don't have many friends. I know you feel alone right now, but God, God sees you. God sees you and he knows you. 
You're so worried about being known on Instagram. God knows you. God knows you. The king of the universe knows who you are. You know what? I think some of us need reminding of that too sometimes. I do. Hey, I don't have a dad in my life. There are times when I forget. There are times when I forget. There are times I relapse into trying to find significance in other things. And God says, Corey, man, I love you. I already gave my full price for you. You don't have to try to prove yourself to anybody. I love you. I see you. We need to be reminded too sometimes. It's the most basic thing you'll ever hear, but it's the most important. God loves you. Would you bow your heads with me? Hey, listen, if you're in this room and, and maybe you don't have a relationship with God or maybe you just got questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Isaac is up here. He'd love to talk with you. Uh, there's men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything. If you wanna stay six feet apart or if you don't care if they lay their hand on you or whatever, make yourself at home. Hey, the last thing is, is your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. You have communion in your hands. Now, if you've been at this church for any length of time, I think communion is a very sacred, special thing. And what you've heard today is you've heard why we take communion. It is so we can remember the cross, so we can remember the price that was paid for us, so we can remember how much Jesus values us and loves us. When you take that bread, you can remember Jesus got his body beaten for me. When you drink that wine, Jesus shed his blood for me because he loves us. He loves us. All we have to do is ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins before we take communion. I want to pray for you. Father, Lord, I love you. Father, if there's anyone in this room, Lord, that has tried to find value, purpose, love, anywhere than, than from you, God, Lord, please direct them back to you. Father, if there's anyone in this room that struggles with affirmation or struggles with feeling valued or struggles with feeling like they're worth anything, I pray, Father, that however you see fit, God, that you would touch them, that you would wrap your arms around them, that you would let them know that they are precious, that they are valued, that they are loved, that they are special, God. Father, I pray that you would just give us the strength to live in a way that honors you honors the gospel, honors what you've done for us, Lord. Forgive us when we mess up, because we're going to. And Lord, let us get right back on the track, God, and do what you want us to do. Bless my brothers and sisters in this room and everyone watching, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. It's in your name that we pray, Father. Amen. And I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.